Hello and welcome to the Scottish Clans. I'm Clint, I'll be your host, and today we're going to talk about the Douglas Clan. Now this is a landmark episode. Why is that? Because for the first time ever, I am recording video in addition to sound with the intention of putting my material on YouTube. So this is a this is this is new new territory for me, and I hope it goes well, and I hope you enjoy it too. There's been so many times where people have said, "Gosh, if I could only have some some images to go with the things that you're talking about," because most people don't have a map of Scotland in their head. They they don't some of the things that the sites and the things I try to describe on here for people who are unfamiliar with Scotland yet interested. They, they have a hard time, and, they, and I've had numerous people say, if only you could make a YouTube video and have some visual study aids to go along with what you're talking about, that would help immensely. Well, we're going to give it a shot. So, I'm creating this video in, in addition to what you all are going to listen to as a podcast, and there's going to be some things worked into the video portion of it that'll be hopefully helpful to you as we talk about the history of Scotland, specifically about the Scottish clans. Now, uh, so some of you are going to be listening to this on a podcast. You're not going to be seeing the visual. And in that way, it's going to be something like um, the Joe Rogan podcast where you can, I've got his stuff on my I haven't heard every episode, but he has some really interesting people on there, and so I have his podcast subscribed to on my phone, and I, on YouTube, I'll see something interesting that he's talking to somebody about, and I'll, I'll watch a few minutes, and so I don't know, maybe we'll do like that, where we break chunks of this down into smaller segments, and I don't know how it's all going to go from here, and I've got a lot of learning to do. You can see right now, it's, it's pretty rough cut. I don't have lighting figured out for sure, and and yeah, and I don't know how the and I don't have time to do a ton of editing. I can't uh, I can't just spend hours on this I, right now. It's already kind of late, and I, you know, I've got things to study and other areas of my life I need to perform in and other commitments. And so, hopefully, this works out, and hopefully, I'm able to put out a product that is helpful to you and and interesting and with the addition of these videos even more helpful so here we go we're going to try it out and if you're just listening to this on a podcast and you don't even care you're like just start talking about the douglases already well okay let's do it so as you see in the title of this episode the the clan douglas the original border reavers the more i was studying about this kindred and and I did something different on this. I, I got into, usually I'm focusing on the history of the clan as a whole, but the, the Douglas, the history of the clan Douglas is a collection of histories. Yes, they did things as a clan. In fact, when I was writing my master's thesis, I found a, an English source of one of the English wardens of the march or marcher wardens, and he took very, very specific details of the raids and counter-raids and a lot of things that were going on within his area of responsibility. And he would include this, the name, if he knew what group it was specifically that raided into his area that he was over of the English March, 
he would write it down. And so you would see whether it was the curs or the, the cars or the whatever, whatever kindred it was, because he would name them specifically by the, by the surname. And I actually did see the Douglas name pop up quite a bit in there. So I know they were active as a clan in the borders. But that was during the time that, you know, during the 1500s, when the 1500s for Scotland were crazy, crazy in, in their own way. A lot of the stories about the Highland clans take place in the 1500s and the border clans, that was like the peak of what was going on down as far as border clans were concerned. However, a lot of people, when they talk about the border clans, a lot of historians, they are talking specifically, there's a 300 year window that they're referring to. And that is during the Scottish, the first, well, there's different conflicts that they include in the Scottish Wars of Independence. But the first conflict that we have, um, what they refer to as the first Scottish War of Independence. And so you're looking at the late 1200s, early 1300s, and then the next generation of English and Scots continue the fight because the Battle of Bannockburn was not, yes, it was huge. And that's where the Scots will look to and say, like, that's where we had our independence. And that's true, but they had to prove it. They had to, they had to continue to fight for it. The work was not done then. They had to defend what they had, what they had gained in the Battle of Bannockburn in earlier episodes. All right. And so that's where the, the history of the border clans usually starts at that time period. And so after that, you see this phenomenon that is the, the, the border reaver come into existence and the different kindreds that made up those border reavers. And so from right off the bat, the Douglases are involved. Um, they don't pop up later. They, are, they do operate later, like into the 1500s during that time I call the peak of the border reaving history. But you see them right off the bat in the Scottish Wars of Independence. And a lot of you have watched the movie Outlaw King. And the, the main, and, and with good reason, the, the, the Douglas clan member that gets a lot of the attention was the good Sir James Douglas. Or if you were an Englishman, the Black Douglas. Because he was not your friend. If you're an Englishman and you supported the were in favor of those English armies that were operating in Scotland trying to subdue the Scots. The good Sir James, or the Black Douglas, became somewhat of a nightmare for you. He would be the boogeyman that you'd tell your kids about that'd come in your house if they didn't behave well. That's horrible parenting, but anyway, he's the boogeyman if you're an Englishman during his time period. So... Let me talk about the origin of the Douglases before I get to really talking about James Douglas, and, and then we'll move into specific Douglas clan members, because what I found as I studied the Douglas history is that it wasn't just an, a history of a kindred. It, there was prominent members that jumped out and were, and were doing great things for their country, especially during this early time period where Scotland has achieved independence and they continue to prove their independence. So let me, let me talk about their origins, and we'll get to that, the individual members of the clan later. All right. So if you look at heraldry, if you're familiar at all with heraldry, that's, for those of you who are not familiar with heraldry, that's the, it's, it's symbols. It's symbols that represent individuals or families, usually individuals specifically with heraldry, or um, at any one time. Usually the, with a clan, all of the clan 
didn't necessarily wear these symbols, but they did mark the person who had a certain title and his descendants would then carry on those symbols. So it, it was a family thing. Anyway, if you're into heraldry and we look at the main part of the, the coat of arms is the shield. They would use these symbols. They'd put them on their tunics, which would go over their armor, which you could see in the middle of the battle because everybody's helmeted up and you can't see who's under there. And it's, I imagine that it would be really, I mean, imagine a football game and even a football game, at least the, the face mask doesn't cover up and completely obscure the face. Um, and, not, and not all helmets did anciently either, but some of them did. And can you imagine a football game, an American football game, if you're watching this in other places, but American football game where nobody has any names on the backs, no numbers, and they're all wearing the same jersey. So here we have heraldry. So it's, it was an ancient form of uniform, of team uniform. Anyway, if, if, if you look over and you see a guy with a specific shield on his tunic and it, the shield has certain colors and designs on it, you're like, oh, that's the Earl of so-and-so, or that's my buddy Jeff over there, or whatever symbol he was using, you knew who it was. It was a way of identification. And then they started adding more symbols on it, more than they actually ever wore on their tunics. And that's how you could, that's how you could identify him. With the Douglases, one re, um, we get into talking about their origin. People say, "Hey, look, the origin of the Douglas, the or the uh, the coat of arms, the, specifically the shield of the Douglas coat of arms, has really similar symbols on it as a few other families do. So those other families would be the Innes clan." the Sutherlands, and the Murrays. So people look at these, these, these symbols and, oh, they're very similar, so maybe they're, the, they're the, the same group of people. Just because they're using similar symbols does not mean necessarily that they are actually blood-related. Keep in mind it was possible for somebody to use similar symbols if they had a connection with somebody else that was very powerful and it didn't have to be a blood connection kind of like surnames if, if you know you recall we talked about in previous episodes that some guy that lived on the land of the Mackenzie chief the Earl of Seaforth or of Kintail or whatever his designation was during that generation he might not have any blood connection to this gentleman but the guy's a pretty good leader and when he calls up the clan, said, let's go fight, you were obligated, not necessarily because you were related to him, but because he was your feudal superior. It's time to grab my sword and go to the clan meeting place. Well, after it comes time for you to get a surname, well, which surname do you pick? Well, you could use your dad's surname or his name as your surname. Well, that would be a patronym. Or you could be called after what you've been doing for a career, like a cooper or a tailor. Um, or what your dad did. I'm the son of John the Taylor. Or you could take the name of the guy whose territory you lived in and to whom you owed your loyalty. And so I imagine there was some back and forth like that with with heraldry as well. So I wouldn't. I say heraldry would be a good clue to go off of, but it's it doesn't alone without any other clues indicate that somebody's for sure related. 
But fortunately for these kindreds, we have more to go on than that. And I'm not going to go into the, all the details regarding the history of the, 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 the Douglas, the Sutherlands, the Murrays, the Innises. I am just going to tell you that at a certain time period, it was the same time period in the 1100s when the Scottish kings were inviting all these Normans into their territory. Same time period, the Scottish kings, see the province of Murray, was not quite securely controlled by the Scottish king. He, uh, the, the, the rulers of Murray had a different idea of their relationship to the, relationship to the Scottish king than the Scottish king, his, than his idea to what, what they should be to him. And this caused a lot of conflict with the province of Murray. And just like in the 1600s when King James VI of Scotland, the first of England, shoved a bunch of Catholic Irish off of their lands in Northern Ireland, in Ulster, and planted it with people that he thought would be more loyal, that was actually a very old practice. The Scottish kings had used their, these Norman nobles that they had invited up to their country, and they had, they had done the same thing with them. They would put them in, very strategically, they put them in hot spots, because they knew these people would be loyal. Well, some of these, some of these Norman noblemen included, they weren't all very specifically Normans of this Viking ancestry that had settled in this specific spot. We talked a little bit during the episode on the Elliots of the Breton contingent amongst the Normans. They all a lot of times get lumped in with the Normans, but they were actually very culturally distinct. Also, those from Flanders called Flemish, they had their own language and I, I imagine if they're operating in a Norman world, they'd learn French. But Flemish was a—they were culturally distinct. But they were in this group that ended up coming up into Scotland. And so you have this Freskin de Moravia. Freskin, his original lands, I believe, were down in Lothian, where Edinburgh is. But he was given lands up in Murray, up on the south shore of the Murray Firth near Elgin. And that's where he was planted as somebody who was, um, apparently the Scottish king viewed him very favorably as a very capable man, and planted him there, and he did great things for his king up there in making sure that province of Murray was secured as Scottish territory of the Scottish kingdom, or the king of the Scots. And he wasn't the only one. There's another Flemish person, the, the one that the Innes has claimed to send from Berewald, now, the one that the Douglases claimed descent from, he, he was named Theobald. And he did not have territory in Murray. It looks like he was given lands right in what would become known as Douglasdale. In fact, this area may have already had the name of Douglas before Theobald acquired it as his property. But there is some kind of connection between Theobald, Freskin, and Berewald, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, because I just want to talk about what the word Douglas means. So Douglas comes from the, the Gallic word du or dove, 
Sometimes they did pronounce that, that V or an F sound there. Du and glass, so it, which translate as dark or, or um, murky water. And so you have Douglas water. I don't know if it got that name because it was carrying a lot of silt in it and it looked muddy. I, I, I don't know, but it's a, it's a stream or a, a creek that runs through what would become the heart of Douglas Territory. So this Theobald obtains territory right in this area that's called Douglas or Douglas the Douglas Water. And it looks like that's who the Douglases claim descent from. His descendants would take their name from they take their name from the land that they settled on, and so they have the surname. That's where they get the surname Douglas. Now, the first guy to actually have the name of Douglas was William, Lord of Douglas. Um, he died in 1214, so he would have been living in the later 1100s. And he is, like I said, the first one on record as using the Douglas name. He may have been a son of Theobald. The dates. Theobald's coming in there and thriving, receiving these lands. The, the date 1147 is what I saw attached to him. So it's possible that this William Lord of Douglas was his son. But, but they, they can't pin that down for sure, but the dates are close enough that that could be the way it worked out. Anyway, I'm not going to go into every generation and... Because, I mean, imagine if you're driving along, listening to a podcast, you're not, you're not going to be writing all this stuff down. But I did write it off all down, just so you know. I'm not, I'm not going to go into every single detail, but I took notes. I probably can't even see that there. But I did take notes. I've got it all drawn out, the family tree and how everybody's connected. But I, I'm not going to go into all that with you. I'm going to go in and I'm going to highlight some of the more distinct personalities in this Douglas kindred and what they were recognized for. All right, so I mentioned William Lord of Douglas is the first one to have that name. His descendant is William the Hardy Douglas. He was the interesting, he was so he's good Sir James Douglas's father. But when William Wallace first began his fight for freedom, now I know so I'm going to reference Braveheart here and I know that a lot of you understand that there's some historical problems with the way that that story was portrayed by Mel Gibson. However, we're not going to be haters, and we're going to acknowledge the fact that um, that's most of your exposure to this story, is, is the movie Braveheart. And it was William Wallace was a, a, a valiant fighter for his country, his people, and William the Hardy, or the bold, Douglas was the first nobleman to follow, follow William, William Wallace. I, I, I got from the Wikipedia article I was reading, and yes, I did use Wikipedia. That's kind of how I familiar myself, familiarize myself with these. I will include specific sources that I use for this. Let me, so let me just pause in the narrative right here. So Wikipedia, I use that to get myself familiar with things I'm, I'm already not super deep familiar with. But then um, I, I'll use that as a launch pad for, to find sources that other people would consider more authoritative. And so the, uh, I didn't see that fact repeated in other histories that I was learning or that I was reading. But I did see on the Wikipedia article that a lot of the noblemen 
at that time time period. See, William Wallace was not very high ranking in the world of the era, the Scottish aristocracy, and so it claimed that many of them would have thought that William Wallace was beneath them. He, like, ah, this guy's kind of like a ragtag. Yeah, he's kind of important, but he's not really that important, and and which would make William the Hardy or William the Bold Douglas exceptional for attaching himself to the cause of William Wallace and fighting with him. And I don't know if it was fighting for him or with him. I don't know what the dynamic between the two of them was, but I, it does make the claim that William Douglas, this William Doug, Douglas was the first nobleman to fight with Wallace. And as they gain success, you see other people, you know, fair-weather friends. Oh, okay, now that they're winning, yeah, sure, I'll join. The Douglases were there from the beginning, and a lot of their operations were taking place in southern Scotland. That was one of the historical inaccuracies of Braveheart, as they typically depict the Highlands, because the scenery is so grand. And it is. I get it. I get why they did it. But, you know, I've seen some cool pictures of the Scottish border country, and it is kind of a lonesome, wild-looking area. And I think they could have shot it there, and it would have been pretty cool too. And that's where a lot of the fighting actually occurred was in southern Scotland during this time period, these, these struggles. So you have William the Bold Douglas fighting with William Wallace and doing great things for his people. And when he first got started on this, James Douglas was his first son. And he, yeah, probably too young to be involved right, right at that point. But by the time that Robert the Bruce has completely decided what side he's on, James Douglas is old enough to fight and becomes Robert the Bruce's almost like his right arm. And I, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic there. They were, he was, I mean, okay, look, this is how close they were. Robert the Bruce, on his deathbed, says, James, my brother, Jimmy, I don't know what he called him, probably James, though. Maybe he had a clever nickname like friends do. I want you to take the heart out of my chest when it's done beating. I want you to put it in a box, and I want you to take it on crusade and fight against the enemies of God. Now, why did he do that? One, because he and James were tight. Two, some people think that he may have still been carrying a little guilt for murdering John Cummins in Greyfriars Kirk, like is depicted in the movie Outlaw King. He may have carried that with him the whole rest of his life. Uh, we don't know for sure at the end of the day, but that was a commitment that he gave, gave to his buddy James Douglas, and James Douglas dies actually fighting the Moors in Spain. There's different dis disagreeing accounts about how that went, but in all accounts are the same in that he, he did it. He executed Robert the Bruce's last wish to his very close friend, and so that's how close they were, is that he would ask that of, of James, and it'd be him that he picked to do it. Now, before that ever came about, these two were hard-charging, prime-of-their-life warriors. And one of the interesting stories I found was that 
Robert the Bruce, like many of his colleagues, his peers, these these they're descendant from they're descended from Normans, but this still this is generations later, right? So this conflict that the outlaw king, that whole story takes place once again late twelve, early thirteen hundreds. He and and most of his peers had just as much territory on in down in England as they had in Scotland, and their loyalties were split. And actually, the Douglases ended up marrying um, into an English noblewoman, it, William the Hardy actually acquired pretty big territory by marrying an English woman. There's, there's actually a cool story behind that, but that's too much of a tangent. I'll, I don't want to get sidetracked. But the moment that Robert the Bruce decided to actually throw in with the Scots, the story goes, I'm just telling you the story goes, is that he was actually on a mission given to him by... King Edward I of England to go tune up. That's how we that's how we say it back in Idaho where I'm from. Somebody's been misbehaving, they need to get tuned up. Edward I tells William Douglas to go tune up, or no, go tells Robert the Bruce to go tune up the Douglases, because they picked the wrong side. And that's what Robert the Bruce is doing. He rides in, he's prepared to bring the wrath of God down on the Douglases. And he rides into that country and he just kind of has a coming to moment like, what am I doing? This, this is my home. These are my people. I'm going to fight for Scotland and I'm going to try to become the king, which I don't think he was in the running for that in England and he was in Scotland. So maybe it was a beautiful epiphany that he had, and maybe it was the fact that William the Bold Douglas was a hard dude. Maybe, I don't know, there's a lot of ways that could have turned out, and I got a lot of speculation running through my mind right now, but I'm going to leave it in the realm of speculation, and I'm just going to tell you that's where the story goes, that Robert the Bruce had that moment where he knew what side he wanted to fight for as he was going with the intent to tune up the Douglases. All right. So that's William the Hardy, and, and we get into this, this relationship now that with James, the good Sir James Douglas, and Robert the Bruce, his future king. Um, in the movie, Outlaw King, Aaron Taylor Johnson is the one that plays James Douglas. And you'll see, is that, that movie, you know, I've, I mentioned Braveheart and the historical problems that certain things had, and I'm not going to spend any time on that. But I will mention that to say that, in contrast, Outlaw King actually fixed a lot of those inaccuracies that you saw in Braveheart. And what you see depicted accurately is in Robert the Bruce's darkest moments, suffered defeat. There's nothing about this guy that would indicate that he would come out on top. James Douglas was still with him, still going strong in the very worst moments. And that was depicted accurately by Outlaw King. There's a few others of note. Um, I'll refer you back to the episode I did. I did like a three-episode series on the Campbells. And I get into the genealogical history of the Campbells and where they come from. I get back into Neil Campbell, which is one of those really close associates of Robert the Bruce who stuck with him through the hard times. But 
James Douglas, right-hand man. Now, here's another cool role that James Douglas plays as we get farther into this story in the fight for Scotland's freedom. So, Robert the Bruce has to go into hiding, and it seems like every clan in the Highlands has a story that they help shelter the Bruce. I know that, you know, with my own... I've mentioned before I have McFarlands in my family tree, and the McFarlands do have a, a legend about aiding him. Now, at the time, I don't think there was such a thing as a McFarland. The kindred existed, but it didn't exist by that name. The Earl of Lennox, who the McFarlands are descended from the early Earls of Lennox, was was also faithful to Robert the Bruce, and Robert the Bruce's flight path after the defeat at Methven went right through the Lennox territory and out the other side. So he has to go into hiding for a little while, and when he needs to come back into Scotland, so they adopt this guerrilla warfare because he doesn't have the manpower to come out and slug it out with the English. And it goes really well, this guerrilla war. The secret warfare, as they called it back then. And one thing that, a really important role that James Douglas comes to play here is that James Douglas, as they start to get more and more support, especially after having a few key victories, and especially because James Douglas, by the time James Douglas comes along, James Douglas is several generations removed from Theobald the Fleming or possibly his son, William, Lord of Douglas. He is, I'm not going to count him. I'm looking at my chart here. Well, you know what? I am going to count him. One, two, three, four, five. It looks like he's five generations later. So by the time James Douglas comes along and this fight for independence, Scotland's fight for independence is, is going on, the Douglas as a kindred are very well established. In fact, they have different branches. And it's not an, in true fashion of an actual clan. It's not like, ah, there's some guys over there that were kind of, we, I think we're related and we just happen to be on the same side here. No, this is a, a more expanded kindred. It's not just brothers and sisters or maybe first cousins. This is an expanded kindred. And they, they acknowledge each other as a kindred, and they're on the same side here, and it's not just a coincidence. Um, and I'll get into I'll get into in a minute uh, a member of the other a, a more distant branch. He's like a third or fourth cousin from James Douglas. But James Douglas would have drawn on that kindred that was beginning to be well established at this time period, and was taking that, that, that resource, that, that manpower that was loyal to him, as well as other people who had no blood connection to him, but were still loyal. And he carried on the fight in southern Scotland. And it, what this allowed Robert the Bruce to do was to be more maneuverable. I got my buddy James occupying the English in the south of the country, and I don't have to be tied to that effort. I can move to other areas of the country and operate wherever I see that I need to be because I know that in southern Scotland, James has got it. And James conducts raid after raid after raid across the border. And here's where we see the Douglases as a border reaver kindred, the originals. Like I said earlier, if you were an Englishman on the wrong side, on the English side of this, and by wrong, I don't mean you had any moral issues. You were just 
against James Douglas instead of on the same side, which when it boiled down to it in many cases ended up being the wrong side if you wanted to stay alive. And so they call him the Black Douglas, which I think is... How, how cool is it that your enemies think that about you? I think anybody who has... And I don't like having enemies, but, uh, but if I did have enemies... I wanted to, I'd want them to be deathly afraid of me. So they were of, of James. Anyway, so he gains fame and fortune and, and becomes a well-respected military leader in his actions in the south of Scotland. Now, in the next, and I'm not, so from here, we're starting to get into like the different branches of the Douglas clan, and I'm not going to go into all those details. I will mention some of the major branches. The one that, that Sir, the good Sir James is part of, they take their name actually from him, and they are known as the Black Douglases. That branch of the Douglas clan become the Black Douglases, the Earls of Douglas, and their territory is focused on Douglasdale, where the Douglas water is, that original heart of their territory. Now, the Douglases would go on to have territories all over Scotland. In fact, if you see my cool little map here, let me put the camera over there. Yep, you've heard me. All right. I'm such a good video shooter. You've heard me mention the map before. That's the one I got. Maybe you got the same one. Anyway, um, you'll notice that the Douglases have territory all over Scotland. And, and it was true, but remember we've talked about previously in, in other episodes that there's a difference between having territory there and having a kindred base there. So the Douglases had territory and owned land all over Scotland. They operated on a national level. They were a big, huge deal. But the, uh, the core, the heart of their territory was, the Doug, was Douglasdale, this area in, in, in southern Scotland. It wasn't right up on the borders, but they operated as a border clan. And that, like I said earlier, we, we see that happening in the memoirs of the English Marcher Wardens. So that's the Black Douglas line that comes from James Douglas. And there's some other, other relations that are involved in there, but that's kind of a, a web that I'm not going to lay all out for you. Now, there's another branch of the family who become the Earls of Morton. And this is a significant branch of the family. And by the time that good Sir James was alive, they were already a separate branch. And in fact, after James Douglas, and, and as we get, so they, you, you see that when you're learning about the fight for Scottish independence, it refers to the Scottish wars, plural, of independence. Because like I said, after the Battle, Battle of Bannockburn, the fight wasn't over. And the next generation of the English king, you know, Edward II, he was the one that was defeated at Bannockburn. His son, Edward III, was neck deep in wanting to finish the work that his dad and his grandpa had been working on, which was subdue the Scots. And so, as long as there's somebody that wants to beat you up, you got to be prepared to defend yourself. So there's there's the, the fight continues, and in this next generation fight that includes the Balliols, that includes 
um, a lot of the same familiar names that we've seen before. In fact, the Baliols have a whole, I just learned, this is a new interesting thing I learned. There's a whole group of people, a whole group of landowners who had been, who had lost their lands because they, they sided against Bruce. And so he's the top dog now. And guess what? You don't have any territory. So you have to go back to your lands in England. And there's a whole group of them that are called the disinherited. And it's largely those who form the ranks of, of the Baliols who try to make this other bid for the throne and take it over. Um, so I believe, I believe it was Edward Baliol, who's the son of John. I know I'm kind of getting into a tangent here, but you see the fight continue is my point. I'm trying to rein myself back in here. Well, James Douglas's like third or fourth cousin, Sir William Douglas, he becomes very famous and actually becomes a very capable fighter of the English. And he is known as the Knight of Liddesdale. Now, in Scotland, there were many knights, but he was known as the Knight of Liddesdale. Liddesdale is right up on the border. So his connection with that territory would have put him right there and a lot of his fighting was done. He would actually establish a camp in the Ettrick Forest. And there's there's some theories about where exactly he was. And, and his camp was for sure mobile. But he used the Ettrick Forest in the lowlands of Scotland as kind of his base of operations. And he led a just a vicious guerrilla fight against this, not only the English, but this, the Balliol faction that was coming trying to, trying to supplant or... To dethrone Robert the Bruce. Um, what we see that wasn't just James Douglas that was loyal to the Bruce. It was the Douglas kindred as a whole. So this cousin of James Douglas, William, Sir William Douglas, the Knight of Liddesdale, also known as the Flower of Chivalry. Wow, that you would have that title. This guy must have been something else. Not just an efficient and an effective leader of men in combat, but the flower of chivalry, that includes, that that implies a code of conduct that he came to be known as living by. Anyway, he he fights this, this nasty guerrilla fight because that's all he, he doesn't have the amount of men that you need to come out and just square off on a battlefield. So he just hit and run, hit and run, as much damage as you can do each time to the enemy and it and it he was very effective in this effort. Um, now he was taken captive by the English. He spent a lot of years of his life in prison in England, and it looks like that the English king worked out a deal with him that if he could have his freedom, if he'd just go back and change sides or do something like that. So he's been years in prison in England. He's. He, he makes this deal with the English king, and we're not going to cast any stones, and we're not going to take away at all from the numerous times that he had risked his life in combat with the English. We're not going to take away from that at all. I don't know what I would do if I had spent years in prison. And you know what? Those prisoners received different levels of treatment. Some very high-ranking people received, I mean, it really wasn't even like prison. The rule was you just can't leave but they were very well treated. And other people, especially if you were known for having taken chunks out of the English forces and been the, the source of much grief 
for English efforts, you might expect different treatment. And so we're not going to cast any stones at William Douglas, the flower of chivalry, the knight of Liddesdale. But when he was returning to Scotland, he, he did have another thing to accomplish on his mind, and that was um, he, he was going to switch sides. And he was met by Sir James Douglas's nephew, the son of James Douglas's brother, Archibald. This nephew's name was William, and he will become the first Earl of Douglas. And so this is still the branch that, we, that is known as the Black Douglases. And that earldom would go back and forth between different descendants, but it would go back eventually to James Douglas's descendants. I don't know what that matters to you, but there it is. So this William Douglas, the flower of chivalry, is coming back into Scotland with what may be considered treasonous thoughts on his mind. He's met by his, once again, distant cousin, William, the not the, I don't believe he's the Earl of Douglas yet, but he has, he has become the, in, in this gap that's been left by the Knight of Liddesdale, this other William Douglas, the cousin, Sir, good Sir James's nephew, he has filled that gap. He's filled the gap in the kindred, and he's filled that gap in the role that his cousin was playing in the fight against the English and against these other factions before he was taken off the prison. He's filled that role. And they actually meet up. So the flower of chivalry is coming back into Scotland. I'm going to call that because call him that because they're both called William Douglas. He's coming back into Scotland, and he actually bumps into this his cousin William. And <coughs> excuse me, his cousin William Douglas kills him. And once again, we're not going to. We're not going to cast any stones because we weren't, we weren't there. Um, was it because William Douglas had filled that role and he didn't want to give it back up? Maybe. Is it possible that he was aware, either through hearing it from other sources or because in that moment, the Knight of Liddesdale told him what his intentions were and that he found out that they were treasonous intentions and decided to stop him and it led to him taking his life. We don't know. But at that at that moment we see the the main actor, the the dominant figure within this Douglas kindred, it goes back over to this other branch of the family that become the Black Douglases. And the the branch of the family that comes from the Knight of Liddesdale, they are actually this, uh, this other branch. So you got the Black Douglases and this other branch that are descended. The leadership of this other branch would be taken by the Knight of Liddesdale's brother, John, and they would eventually become the Earls of Morton. So I mentioned that earlier. So we got these two branches recognized here. Now going back to the Black Douglas branch, there's a group that's descended from this William Douglas that killed the Knight of Liddesdale. And from that branch, we get the they become the Earls of Angus. There's some marriage stuff going on, and they inherit the Earldom of Angus. And this branch, 
Not to be outdone by the colorful nickname of their cousin branch, they become the Red Douglases. So the Black Douglases are the knight or the, the Earls of Douglas, and the Red Douglases are the Earls of Angus. Angus is a very old earldom, not like the Earldom of Douglas. That was created more basically within this, this group that we're talking about here. The Earldom of Angus goes back to the earliest divisions of Scotland. And eventually the Stuarts came to have it. And then through marriage, this um, we get this branch of the Douglas family. The Red Douglases have the Earldom of Angus. So those are three of the most prominent branches of the Douglas clan. And there are a lot of other branches that I'm not including here. And I'm sorry if you are descended from those other branches and like, this guy's a chump. He didn't even include the Douglases of Dalkeith or go on down the Drumlin rig or where other these different branches are. And, it, and it's colorful history and I'd leave it to you guys to get into study there. But there you have, there's, I mentioned four specific Douglases, all pretty close generationally to each other. And these guys were aggressive, effective, capable, patriotic fighters on the cause in the cause of their country. And I think I think that if you are a member of the Douglas clan or descendant of this kindred, you have a lot to be proud of with this group right here. And I know they had conflicts with each other, and the Red Douglases and the Black Douglases would go on to really not get along well together. In fact, maybe I'll just, in closing, add up this little wrapping up episode here. The, the Douglases came to, through marriage, they were very closely related to the kings of Scotland. And in the mid-1400s, the, the Black Douglas branch of the clan actually rose up against the Stuart dynasty that was in place at the time. I actually don't remember exactly which king it was. Now, there, there had been some offenses made. In their growing power, there was two Douglas brothers that were the, the, from the leading family of the Black Douglases, and they were, they were basically murdered by the Scottish king. But I don't know if it was a revenge that they were doing or if they were just making a bid for power, or maybe it was both, and maybe there's other motives that are not even included. But in the mid-1400s, we have this massive rebellion on the part of the Douglases. Include some very other, very uh, some other very influential leaders within the realm of Scotland. And to make a long story short, and you can read about this on your own if you'd like. I'm just getting you started, maybe. I believe it was in 1455, you had the Battle of Arkenholm. Some of Douglas's, the Black Douglas's allies in the north of Scotland had been defeated, and they that that and some of them just their will to continue the fight melted away, and they, they did not, one way or another, the Douglas uprising lost very important supporters. And so he fights this Battle of Arkenholm, which in some sources refers to as just as a skirmish. But anyway, that they, the Douglases lost, the Douglases and their allies lost, and that was kind of the end of the this branch of the Douglas being so mighty and so powerful. I'm not saying they got extinguished, but that was the the 
kind of after that, it's the Red Douglases that are that take the leadership. They become the dominant branch of the kindred, and they play a very big part on in the politics and in the history of Scotland from there on out. And it's those, it's that branch, the Red Douglas branch, that rise to that ascend to power. They're already pretty powerful, and they are actually very, very also very closely related to the Scottish kings on on different directions. In fact, the the Red Douglases. The reason they, one reason of possibly many, that they sided against their Douglas kinsmen and were part of the force opposing them at the Battle of Arkenholm was that they were more closely related to the Stuart kings than they were to these Douglases, these other Douglases. So that's, I think that's a fascinating dynamic to this, these events. Anyway, so that's kind of, that's, I'm going to bring you up to the mid 1400s and drop you off. If you want to know what happened with the Douglases after that, I'll leave it to you. But I'm at 49 minutes, which is too long. I'm trying to do these, keep them at, at 30 minutes, but I've got to wrap this up. Plus, it's getting late, and I got class tomorrow. So thank you for joining me on this episode. Okay, here's the different spiel at the end. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit subscribe and the like button and the bell for notifications. You're supposed to say that, right? If Whenever you're doing YouTube videos, you have to say that. So, you know what? And I never do, except for I have been lately. So I hope people appreciate it. They don't know whether I put it or not, but I hope you guys do it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, I, I hope that you'll go in and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts and subscribe, of course, to the podcast. But here's, here's the thing that I think is more important. I'm doing these podcasts as a conversation starter. There's some of you out there who know a lot of stuff about this stuff. That was pretty articulate, wasn't it? And you have a lot to contribute to the conversation. There's others of you who don't know anything at all. You're just barely getting started in this, this subject. And I have watched the two of you groups that I just mentioned interact with each other on our Facebook page or our Facebook group. Don't get those confused. I've watched you interact with each other. I've watched very new people get on there and ask very beginner questions, which are awesome. I'm not saying that with an ounce of disdain. I want you to ask those questions. And then without waiting for me to get on there, because like I mentioned, I got limited time. I've watched other people who do know a thing or two about this and they get in there. You know who you are too. You know who you are if you've been doing this. They'll jump in there and continue the dialogue, give very insightful feedback and answer their questions. And I just want you all to know how much I appreciate both groups and everywhere that's everybody that's in between those two ends of the spectrum. So thank you for doing that. Continue the conversation on the Facebook group. Also, if you want to reach out to me and ask questions or make comments, you can do so through Podbean. And um, and Apple Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, and uh, and Podbean are the the three that I check the most often. And now I got to check Facebook, which I'm looking forward to. So thank you for joining me on this episode about the Clan Douglas. And until next time, Marsh and Leve and Drasta. <laughs> <laughs>